So this, this is the fourth Shabbat of fighting and of warfare. The fourth Shabbat with no Shabbat, no rest for Israelis and Palestinians. Last night we were on the road to a 72-hour truce, but this morning we awoke to the news that an hour and a half into this truce, Hamas operatives emerged from a tunnel, abducted an Israeli soldier, Hadar Goldin. My prayers are with his family. On this Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, I really want to seek a few moments of inspiration in the midst of this conflict and see if we can find a glimpse of hope. So let's go into Devarim. We're in the first parsha of the last book of Torah. And Moshe begins, and this is Moshe's book. This is his book of three huge speeches that he gives. And he begins by going about the business of reconstructing memory and narrative. He takes two stories and he reinterprets them for the purpose of his mission. The first story we read in Shemot, in Parshat Yitro, where Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, comes and sees Moshe working nonstop as judge, as leader, as everything, as kind of the one-man show for the people and says, no, you can't do this. This isn't good for you. This isn't good for my daughter. And this isn't good for the people. Hire... Hire some judges, hire some leaders in the community who can work with you. When Moshe tells the story this time, somehow we've lost Yitro. Moshe is the one who says, I can't do this. I can't carry you all by myself. I need help. In the second story that he tells, that he retells, Second story is from Parshat Shalach Lecha, just a few weeks ago. So we even have the, the memory of the details clearly in our heads as we listen to Moshe this week, reconstructing the memory and the narrative. In the version in Bamidbar, we learn that God commands Moshe saying, send some spies. We're on the edge of the land. I want you to send some spies, some scouts into the land to see what kind of land it is. What kind of people are there? Moshe sends the 12 scouts. They come back first with a glowing report of the land, but they say, however, and this is a big however, the land eats these inhabitants, the inhabitants of the land. And who are these inhabitants? They're giants. There's no way we can go in. The people hear this report of the, of the scouts, of the spies, they weep, they cry, they refuse to go in. And interestingly, Moshe is silent in the face of their fear and their panic. But Kalev and Yehoshua stand up and say, no, we can do this. We can go in. God is on our side. You just need to have faith. In the second version of the story, the, the version that Moshe tells this week, it's not God who instructs us to send scouts. It's the people. 
the people come to Moses and they say, before we go in, we need to see how we're going to inherit this land, how we're going to make this conquest. Let's send some spies on a reconnaissance mission. Moshe goes along with it. The spies go, they come back, and they bring this glowing report. But it's the people this time. The people hear only the glowing part of the report, and they freak out, and they say, there's no way, we're not going, we can't do this. And the people become, in some ways, the villains of, these, of this story, not the spies. But remember how Joshua and Kalev a few weeks ago stood up? They're also not in this story, in this version of the story. Instead, it's Moshe who stands up and says, this is God who carried us. Yes, we can do this. We can go, we go up and fight, and we will win. Moshe is the hero. I came away from reading this retelling and this restructuring of narrative and of memory, thinking about the power of narrative in the context of our current and ongoing conflict. We talk about the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians as intractable, composed of two opposing narratives that are so well entrenched and defended and in which history and faith are inseparable. One of the most vivid depictions of these two narratives is in Eric Black's Dialogue of Two Monologues from his book Parallel Realities. In this book, Black lines up side by side on the page. The left side of the page is the Israeli narrative point by point from biblical times until the Oslo Accords. And on the right side of the page is the Palestinian narrative point by exact same point from biblical times to the Oslo Accords. I just want to give you a taste. This is what he writes. The left side of the page, the Israeli narrative. Thousands of years ago, the Jews lived and ruled in the land that God had promised them. The only country they ever had, the place where King Solomon built the temple that is the holiest site in Judaism. David Ben-Gurion, founding prime minister of Israel, said, Jerusalem has been the Jewish capital for 3,000 years since King David. Jerusalem is more Jewish than Paris is French or London is English. Now we move to the right side of the page, the Palestinian narrative. The modern Palestinians descend from the ancient Canaanites and Philistines who inhabited the Palestine region before, during, and after the relatively brief era of the Jewish kingdom there. Palestinian historian Sami Hadawi called the connection of the ancient Israelites with Palestine short-lived, unstable, intermittent, long extinct, based on nothing better than the right of conquest. So what do we do with these two opposing narratives that will never meet in the middle of the page? There are enclaves on the ground where Israelis and Palestinians, entrenched in their own narratives, are venturing cautiously out to hear each other. One is an organization that I mentioned three weeks ago called Encounter, where North American Jewish leaders and also Israeli leaders are visiting Palestinian communities and are hearing from Palestinian leaders, hearing their perspectives, not necessarily agreeing, but listening. 
Another example that I want to bring is a Palestinian leader from Bethlehem who I had the opportunity to work with last year named Sami Awad. Sami Awad, he's the founder and the director of an organization called the Holy Land Trust. And part of his mission is to be able to hear the other narrative. And as part of his own process, he traveled to Auschwitz and he went to listen and to see and to hear. And he came back from his experience and he started a fund that now brings a small number of young Palestinian leaders every year to Auschwitz to hear and to see. So you might say this is well and good when the war isn't happening, but how can people be doing work like this now? I'm thinking about just two weeks ago, Rachel Frankel, the mother, the mother of the murdered Israeli student, Naftali Frankel, when she emerged from Shiva, she heard that a young Palestinian man had been murdered and she sent a message to his mother and said, no, this should not be happening to any mother. It's leaders like Sami Awad, like Rachel Frankel, who can hear elements of each other's narratives. And they are the ones who I believe will build a future with legs, a future that has a future and not a state of perpetual fear or obliteration. This week, I read a powerful essay entitled Fighting with Faith, The Role of Religion and Dealing with Modern Conflict. It's by a lawyer named Sean McDonough. And his whole premise is that in conflict transformation, the negotiators who are coming in are bringing in completely secular concepts. But the conflicts themselves are embedded in religious narrative and strife. So he's arguing that the way to move forward is to bring in the religious leaders and to bring in religious language. He writes, religious adherents, non-adherents, and negotiators engaged in rebuilding communities fractured by religious violence must be willing to candidly discuss what they believe, what they seek, and why. They must do this even with the knowledge that the stories they tell will be impossibly contradictory. The hope of this engagement cannot be to resolve these differences, for that may never be, but only to transcend them. Only then might those who fight in the name of God recognize that it is only the fight itself and not God which is served by the continuation of religious violence. Peace does not necessarily require that parties agree to compromise on or ignore their differences. Instead, it requires that they transcend their differences. While transcendence is an almost wholly unknown concept to modern social sciences, it is fundamental to religious practice. These are the kind of leaders that we need, Palestinians and Israelis, brave leaders who know that these two narratives will never agree, will never meet in the middle of the page, but who believe in the power to transcend them. I want to go back into the Parsha for a moment. Professor Micha Goodman, an Israeli professor, notes that Moshe 
began his career a few months ago in Shemot by saying, Lo ish divarim anuchi. I'm not a man of divarim, of words. He said, I can't do this. I can't lead. Please give this job to someone else. <laughs> Amazingly and inspiringly, he ends his career. Moshe ends his career with Devarim, with a whole book of them. Moshe will not enter the land, but his Devarim will. He was a leader who saw the impossible before him, and he had that moment of the beginning saying, this, this is intractable, this is impossible, I can't do it. He pushed through, he led, and he came back full of divarim. And this is the inheritance that he has given to us. To be that kind of people. And even, I speak to us, even if we are not the ones with authority right now in this conflict, we have power and we can exercise leadership within our communities and beyond. Can we be the kind of people who, even though we see the conflict in front of us as impossible, as intractable, as I want to run the other way, that we move forward, that we engage, that we listen, that we hear the other narratives, and that we transcend them?